good morning. Didn't finish the story about the University of Liverpool. Um, when I went to graduate there, of course it's in England, and I wasn't able to take my family with me. My daughter requires care in home. So I was going alone. I, I didn't think much about it because I knew I didn't want to think much about it, that friends and family wouldn't be accompanying me. And uh, I made the flight to Manchester, New England. It's a night flight, so flew all night, tried to get a couple hours sleep. I was very excited. And I kind of stumbled off the plane like everyone else, and I'm walking down the, the jetway and into the airport, and someone comes up behind me and jumps on my back. Who would you guess that is? Ken Fuller. So Ken attended my, my graduation with me. We had lots of fun walking around the streets of Liverpool, found a burger joint. We always find burger joints, don't we? Garbage burgers and stuff like that. <laughs> Dear friend, privileged if I've had any kind of a mentoring role in Ken's life. Well, you have two sheets of paper. That, uh, one is a diagram. It's actually an infographic is what they call it these days. looks like that. And I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but I would love for you to take that home and read it and reflect on it because it, the attempt is to capture all that needs to be done in the church with respect to disability. And uh, it speaks for itself. It's done by some wonderful graphic artists at Cal uh, Baptist in California. They put this together. I just gave them the information. And they did a beautiful job. Uh, the other sheet uh, is, uh, it looks like that. It's a series of questions. Today we'll be looking at, you know what, I picked up the wrong one. Uh, it should say something to the effect of ministering to those with disabilities. I picked up one from last night, so my mistake. But that is only, it's not the notes for today, it's the questions that I'm going to try to answer. So if you don't read the notes, uh, if you don't use the notes, some of you prefer not to, I'm sure, you won't be missing anything. It's just a guide and, and it's helpful. It's intended to be helpful. Well, I've been really looking forward to this time. Uh, for a long time, actually, in 1997 when we moved here to Tampa, uh, one of the first experiences I had, I think maybe a month into preaching at the church, was uh, a, a woman whose name I will not disclose. Some of you can figure it out. Uh, she approached me after church, and she said, you work with Johnny and Friends as a volunteer, right? And at that point, I'd worked with Johnny and Friends as a volunteer for seven years. So this is close to 25 years ago now, more than that, actually. And uh, I said, yes, yes, I, I really enjoy my work. It's, it's on weekends and it's uh, during vacations and that sort of thing. It's not part of my regular work, which is teaching in a seminary. And she said, well, are, are we going to hear about disability in our church? And I said, yes. I mean, I thought briefly, I thought, yes, I'll, I'll try to come up with a message for next week. Not next week, a few weeks after. The message that I'm going to give today is actually that same message kind of recast. I've used it many times. All it is is a story about what God is doing in history with disability. Uh, but I have to tell you, it's in some ways the same message, still close to my heart after these many years. And it's been very helpful to me personally as a father and as a brother-in-law, as you'll see in a moment, to uh, people with disabilities. Well, I bring you greetings from my family and from Johnny and Friends. Some of you may be familiar with the Johnny and Friends ministry. Uh, our approach this morning is going to be focusing on how we help other people with their suffering. And yes, some of those people may be people with disabilities, but some of those people may be people with cancer and other forms of suffering. Uh, we're going to talk about the relationship between disability and suffering because that's a very important thing. Um, not, I'll say it this way, right away in the time we spend together, not everyone with a disability is suffering. They don't believe they're suffering. They have a disability by God's design, and they live with it, and life works perfectly well for them. So we have to be careful of the direct equation between disability on the one hand and suffering on the other. Um, there are people who don't have disabilities who are suffering, you see? So it, it's not a direct equation. But that there are, there are actually three things that I think would be most important for you. If I were to try to help 
change or maybe help you improve. My knowledge of suffering is improving the older I get. Um, it would be these three things. First of all, not every person with a disability suffers. We just said that. So disability and human suffering must not be equated. Secondly, we generally have a view of suffering, and this is review for those of you who were here last night, this first part. We have a passive view of suffering, and the passive view is this. We wait for it to come, and when we experience it, and the experience is over, so is the passive approach to suffering. It's very simple in a lot of ways. We don't do anything except suffer. But the biblical and active view of suffering is one that the psalmist addressed last night in our study of Psalm 73. But many portions of scripture talk about suffering this way. In fact, seeing suffering as something we can do actively, and suffering, as we said last night, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, it's not just an event, it's a process. If we're willing to view suffering that way, then being active in our suffering will be very important. We can take an active role in our suffering. We don't just have to wait for it. We have another option, and that is to respond actively to it. We'll talk more about that. And the third thing that I think is important for you to remember or identify if it's the first time you've heard this is that suffering is a wisdom issue. The Bible talks a lot about wisdom. All that wisdom is, is simply skill for living. It's very practical, has two feet on the ground. It's not the speculative wisdom that's like philosophy uh, that the Greeks practice. No, the, Bible, the Bible's view of wisdom is very practical. It's just skill for getting through the day, for finding success in all that you do in life. Suffering is like that. We see that in books like the book of Job. Job's story is really about wisdom in the course of suffering. Uh, Job didn't know what to do. He took suffering passively. It happened to him, and he just waited to see what would happen next. Uh, he wanted to change things, but his, his view of suffering was not active. He learned that he needed to be active in his suffering, in his own suffering. We also see that same kind of wisdom in suffering in the book of James. Let those who suffer, this is my paraphrase of James 1.4, let those who suffer, lacking wisdom to suffer, let them ask of God because he gives it generously. You see, that's what the book of James is about. It's about suffering. People were suffering, uh, needed encouragement, and James wrote them a letter, the book of James. And he starts right off the bat with his major point. Those of you who are suffering need wisdom. And that wisdom can only come from above. There will be lots of advice people will have for you. You may need to shut it off and look to God for the wisdom that you need to get through suffering. Well, this morning we're going to look at what the Lord has done, is doing, and will do, to some extent, with and for persons with disabilities. So we'll still be talking about suffering, but we'll be focusing in on a subgroup of people within uh, the suffering category, the broad suffering category, that happen to be classified by human knowledge as having disabilities. And I shared very honestly last night with you that I don't know if classifying people as having a disability is a good thing. It's imprecise, first of all. We just have a big group and we lump a bunch of people together. It's not helpful in that way. Um, but there are other problems with that as well. And it has to do with the range of suffering. Some people suffer incredibly who have disabilities. Other people hardly suffer at all, at least not any more than the rest of the population. We will also consider how the church collectively, that is all of us, and we as believers individually can assist persons with disabilities. And by the way, persons with disabilities can and do assist other people with disabilities and other forms of suffering. 
I've found that the insights that they have are helpful for me. My boss has probably some of the best insights on suffering. She writes about it, about it, she speaks about it. But I listen when she talks about suffering. I listen very carefully because I don't know what it's like to get up in the morning and not be able to move parts of my body from my neck down and experiencing excruciating pain as well, going with quadriplegia. So what she has to say, I want to listen to. It will help me. Well, all of this, I'm going to call God's story in our time together today, or God's plan. It's the same thing. God's story is what he's working out in the world and has been since the beginning of time. That's his plan as well. And we're going to be talking about how our, I prefer the word testimony actually, to story, how our testimonies, our individual testimonies of suffering and disability, if that's appropriate, fit with God's story, God's history, if you will, for all time. I'd like for you to note, as I said last night, that I will use three disability conventions for communication this morning. First of all, I've written out my text on the slides. So for those who are sight impaired, uh, for hearing impaired, they will be able to look at the slides, read my message, or watch my trusted interpreter over here and get the message. But you can reflect back and forth between the slides and the interpreter. Also, I will use large, bold lettering for those who are sight impaired. That way, maybe they can look at the slides and they can see them when, in fact, uh, many times it's not possible to see or read things that are meaningful to them. And then lastly, for those who are intellectually or developmentally disabled, have a hard time understanding, I will try to use what's called simple English. That's a technical term. Simple English is scaled down language so that everybody can understand it, really. It's not just for people who are intellectually or cognitively disabled. Well, we're not only going to talk about God's plan, we're going to talk about our participation. But let me tell you my family story, first of all. I, I shared it last night. Now I want to share it from a different perspective. And you'll recognize... Uh, I think very quickly where we got the title for the book that my co-editor and myself just wrote, Disability and Mission. This is a family passion. It's an outworking of a family goal to resolve something that's a problem. Go back to 1953. A lot of you weren't around then. Uh, but my family, my wife's family, actually boarded a boat in New York Harbor and went to Nigeria. They went together. My father-in-law's over on the left. My mother-in-law is in the middle holding a child. <clears throat> so Send I You was a song that they used to sing at missions conferences when someone would go off to the mission field. Uh, it's a song that you may be familiar with. But in 1957, they came home after the first term. And that's a full term of four years. But something was wrong. The three children had developed malaria my wife and her two siblings had developed malaria, and her sister developed a very unusually high and damaging, brain damaging, uh, fever associated with malaria, and they came home to get help for her. So they took the boat over, but they took the plane, the Flying Dutchman, by the way. Some of you who recognize planes, I'm told that's a Flying Dutchman. And they landed in northern New Jersey uh, looking for help for my sister-in-law for whom I and my wife are guardians today. 1957 was the year. I'm not sure anyone told them to come home. I think they were looking for help on their own. But the challenge came with returning. In fact, this is their missionary picture that was supposed to be on missionary cards. We used to put these all over the church. I'm not sure we use this convention anymore. We use all sorts of other graphics and so on. But everybody had a card. And this was their card that they made to go back to Nigeria. So this was the new card they intended to use in 1958. And after several years, um, by my estimates, maybe three to four years, they were not able to raise support to go back. They had been able to raise support to go the first time. 
seemed very comparatively easy the first time. The second time, it didn't work. And I've never been able to get out of anyone in my family, why not? What happened? Um, did somebody say no? Did somebody say, we don't think it's a good idea for you to take a child with a disability back to the field? I, don't, I really don't know. And my in-laws were the kind of people that just did it. They, regardless of the challenge, they did it, and they moved on, and they always said good things about the churches that supported them and the mission board that sent them. But we wonder, because their heart was to go back. They learned the Hausa language, the primary language of Nigeria. Uh, they, they were effective in ministry during those four years. It wasn't a failure story where they had to figure out what to do next. They had done, and they were going back to do once again. But they couldn't go back. So God redirected them. Again, the survivors that they were, uh, my father-in-law took pastorates in uh, Brooklyn, New York, in northern New Jersey, Pennsylvania, finally in upstate New York where I finally met my wife, their daughter, who's that cute little munchkin over to your right, furthest. But that's her and her siblings. Becky's in the middle. Uh, Becky's my sister-in-law that uh, developed brain damage from high fever. Fast forward 35 years. Some of you have probably seen this picture before, a few of you at least. That's the dual kids gathered around the Christmas tree, authentically with rabbit, and my daughter has a skinned knee, I can see. That's very common in our family. Everybody had skinned knees and elbows. But far over to the left, as you look at the picture, is my daughter Joanna, who has Down syndrome. You say, wait a minute, you're in-laws had a child with a disability, a cognitive disability, much less. And you do too. That's right. Coincidence? Nah. There are no coincidences when it comes to things like this. God has a plan, and God is working it out. And it's only for us to figure out where we fit in that plan. So those are the dual kids. They're all uh, young adults now. Uh, several of them are married our daughter, Joanna, over on the left, lives with us. She's 31 years old. We have lots of fun. <clears throat> In fact, she's my kayak buddy. And when people look at this, they say, Dave, why are you wearing Joanna's life jacket? <laughs> Joanna's got this big life jacket on, and I've got this little one. Well, I'm one of those doting fathers that worries. And so the big life jacket is for her. Um, she is an angel, but she also played angel in the Christmas place. She has a hard time memorizing, so she could be an angel. She was a good one. She was really good, in fact. Of course, that's just a father's opinion. <clears throat> People ask us, as a family, uh, because my wife has all kinds of experience. She has a sibling with a cognitive disability, and she has a daughter with a cognitive disability. People ask us, how do you raise a child with a developmental or cognitive disability? My Aunt Helen uh, was one of the earliest teachers of special ed in upstate New York, long ago. They didn't even have a classroom for her, so she went out and found one. She went to the churches and said, got room? And one of them said, you bet. And so she started the first uh, special ed class in our, our area. Before she died, I went to her and I asked her, because Joanna was newly born, I said, Aunt Helen, I don't know what to do. How do I do this? She said, it's not that hard. She said, rule number one, always talk to her slowly so that she can understand you. Makes sense. Rule number two, repeat many times what you want her to know. Don't just do it once. Say it once. Repeat it several times. And rule number three, most importantly, <clears throat> she told me that because she knew I would have the hardest time with this one. Most importantly, be firm, but give her lots of love. And you know what? It worked. There's my little prom queen. And this is indeed the night of the prom. And this is when we were waiting for her prom date to come. Now, John Barron has Down syndrome also. He happened to be 40 years old. She's 19, but they didn't care. It was all about having fun. And so when the Barons rolled in, John's father and mother were in the front seat because John does not have a driver's license. He's not allowed to drive, but his, his parents chauffeured them to the prom. 
<clears throat> and when they showed up, we all got out. Uh, they got out of the car, and we came out of the house. We went on the front lawn and took pictures. It was a blast. But I, my devious side came out. I, I told Joanna, I said, stand right here, honey. I'm going to come back and take your picture. And I went over to John, and I whisper, whispered to him, John, I have a secret. If you would like to kiss Joanna on the cheek, on the cheek, you may go over very respectfully, and John is a perfect gentleman, and you may kiss her on the cheek. So at the time to take the picture, I told Joanna, okay, honey, on the count of three, I'm going to take the photo. One, two, three. <laughs> Look at the size of those eyes. Is she shocked or what? And we all had a great laugh, and Joanna enjoyed it. It was not something that was harmful in any way to her. And John did too, and I politely said to John, I said, now, John, never kiss my daughter again. I'm a dad. What can I say? And then came graduation day at age 21. Uh, in many states, they allow a person with a developmental disability maybe three more years to uh, progress in their understanding and their learning. And so we had, a, we had a grand celebration for Joanna's graduation. There she is with her diploma. And that's my family. We're a happy family. Um, when my sister-in-law is with us, we're even happier because then there are two people with developmental disabilities sitting at the table. But that is my family, and, and this is Father's Day, and I'm the happiest guy in the room. Who are people with disabilities? Who are they? Think about this. They're us. It's us. All of us. In fact, those of us who live to be 80, to this last night, will have a 50% chance of developing multiple disabilities. Not just one, but multiple disabilities. So yes, they are us. It's not an us and them. It's all in us, folks. One in seven people globally has a disability. They are the world's largest minority group. Now, missiologists like to say they are the, lar the largest unreached people group. But that's not a good classification because disability cuts across all the people groups, if you understand the logic of that system. Um, the purpose of the unreached peoples group uh, way of defining things is so that we can identify people groups who are completely unreached in the world, and we can go and do something, do something about it. Um, it's, uh, it's not a bad plan. But people with disabilities are not an unreached people group. First of all, they're not unreached. There are many people with disabilities who are believers, many, many of them. Many of the one billion are believers already. But among them are some of the poorest, least educated, and most health deprived. Now, that's a complicated thing. I can't even begin to explain it all. I'm not sure I understand it. I'd have to understand it to explain it. But I do know that it's true. It's less true in our country, but it's still true in our country. But you go in developing countries where they have no services, they have nothing at all. A person with a disability is usually confined to a back room where the family cares for them, and the rest of the community probably doesn't know about them. They're secret. Much of their suffering is due to the fact that they are also the least employed. My friends with disabilities at the UN say, we don't want charity. We want a job. I like that. I think that's a great message. But most, most of their suffering is due to the fact that they are also the least employed. Until recently, we have assumed that only about 30% of persons with disabilities globally are employed. That's wrong. It's worse. Current studies demonstrate that the number is closer to 15%. And by being employed, they can resolve, people with disabilities can resolve a lot of their own problems. And they should be allowed that dignity and that opportunity. We enjoy achieving, all of us. And people with disabilities, as part of that group, enjoy it, of course, as well, perhaps more. Well, this means that 85% of persons with disabilities are underemployed and must report, resort excuse me, to other methods of support, including begging, theft, 
drug sales, even prostitution, however they can survive. You know, in this country, we're not talking about another country, 40% of the inmates in prisons have some form of cognitive disabilities, usually cognitive. Uh, in federal prisons, in state prisons, it's around 50%, and that's probably changed since I read this study. But in local jails, county jails, it numbers around 60%. That is huge. And no wonder, because many times, drug dealers use people with disabilities to sell their drugs. And their reasoning is galling, quite frankly, but they say something like this, well, if they get caught, they'll be put in a secondary sort of an institution and they won't be punished and they won't have life sentences. So consequently, they're used. They're horribly used, which is an awful thing. What kinds of disabilities are there and how might we categorize them? Well, I, I had to show you. It's very complicated. And my point isn't to explain this to you because I'm not gonna try. But disabilities, if you can systematize them and talk about their relationships to one another, look something like this. This is a chart prepared by Niagara University. If you'd like the chart, you can just go to Niagara U University's website you can download it, but I'm not gonna to try to explain it. I just want you to realize about the complexity of disability. It's not an easy thing to understand. It's not easy to understand one kind of disability in that bubble chart, much less all of them. But you know what? You don't have to. That's not the important thing. I don't understand Down syndrome, even though I've read about it for 31 years now. There's no research being done. And it's helpful, but the bottom line is, do I love my daughter? Do I take care of her? That's what's important. Disability is a complex matter for which we are growing in our understanding daily. By the way, in leaps and bounds, there's a lot of research being focused on disability now. Uh, MIT, uh, the uh, engineering school, has dedicated a number of their programs just to disability technology. So this is a great day. If I were saying this 30 years ago, I would have said, it's not good, it's horrible. But what's happening today is wonderful and hopefully it will continue because you will be seeing more people with disabilities because of it. They'll be able to get out more and be a part of the community which they long to be a part of. Well, concern for people with disabilities is nothing new. And yes, we've made tremendous progress in leaps and bounds, but it's nothing new. Ken said, I. He didn't say it this way, but I love to look at these old texts and try to think the thoughts of 5,000 years ago. My favorite way to do that is by reading my Bible. But I find that there are ancient texts that actually give me a perspective on just what paganism was like in the ancient world and how they lived their lives, how they tried to survive. And this is one example. By the way, don't tell anybody you came to church this morning and somebody talked about a Mesopotamian myth, okay? So mum's the word on this. An ancient Mesopotamian myth is called Enki and Ninmak. Those are two fake gods. Tells how at creation, the god Enki assigned people with disabilities functions in society so that they could earn their living honorably as artisans and musicians, even working before the king. Well, that's pretty cool for 4,000 years ago. That's a, a really, I, I don't know if they did this. Maybe this is just literature. Could be just the king's propaganda, by the way. They did that back then. But it was composed over 4,000 years ago. And it gives us an awareness of the need of persons with disabilities to enjoy autonomy, functioning by themselves, and dignity. Not just self-respect, but respect from the rest of society. It's nothing new. But you know what? God went far beyond the cultures surrounding early Israel when he gave his law in the Bible to protect and provide for people with disabilities. Right away, God recognized this as an issue and he sought to resolve it. Through legislation, you wonder how a pastor can be involved in the UN. I don't know if that thought crossed your mind. But it's pretty easy. 
It's all about laws. It's about policy. And if by creating a good policy or tweaking the terminology and policies, you can improve the lives of people with disabilities, I love doing that. That's one of my favorite pastimes. I do it evenings. I turned off the television. I wanted to blow it up, but I turned it off, and I started working on UN work, and I've been doing that for about four years now. It's very enjoyable. And I've seen it work. That's the, that's the best part. I've actually seen it work, and usually in places outside the United States. Well, we usually start out our stories as I've just done with my story, my family story. But only God's story offers people with disabilities the kind of encouragement and hope that they both seek and need. And by the way, we all seek and need it, not just those of us who have a disability already. Remember the 80 and, yeah, remember the 80%. God's story of disability, the unfolding plan from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to survey that this morning from Genesis to Revelation and look at the ways that God has interacted with people with disabilities. But once upon a time, it's my way of starting the story, God gave us a beginning without disabilities. And we learn this in the books of Genesis and Exodus. Do you know what? It almost seems like no sooner does God create mankind and the fall occurs and disabilities begin and God is already wrestling with some guy named Moses over his disability. Yes, in the beginning, there was no disability. It all began in a beautiful garden paradise that God made for woman and man to meet him, worship him, and enjoy his presence. And loving the Old Testament, I can't pass up the opportunity to tell you that the Garden of Eden is described for us in the book of Genesis like a temple or a sanctuary. It was the place that man and woman would come to worship their God. And when they sinned against God, he drove them out. And now they would need to seek a place to worship him. But he created them to be there. That's the underlying message of the terminology and the concepts that you see in the Hebrew language behind Genesis chapter 1. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. How's that? It's a place of worship and fellowship. Well, God created man and woman, in fact, all of creation without disability. Have you ever noticed that animal kind also has disabilities? And not just physical, but cognitive as well. Part of the fall. Part of the effects of the curse on this world. The fall and the curse brought disabilities, sickness, and pain. As creator, God assumes responsibility for disabilities. And this is a huge controversy. There are people that I know will get, who would be upset right now if they were here. They would say, God did not have anything to do with disabilities. Disabilities just sort of happen, and that's the way it is, and God helps people with disabilities, but God had no hand in it. Oh, but yes, he did. Yes, he did. And one of the happiest days of a parent of a child with a disability or a person with a disability is when they realize and they finally come to grips with the fact that their disability is actually part of God's plan. It's not bad luck. It's not punished. Hopefully it's not punishment for some sort of sin. It could be. I want to be careful here. Well, as creator, God assumes responsibility for disabilities. Notice I didn't blame God. I'll explain that in a moment. Speaking to Moses, who just wanted to understand why he couldn't seem to speak right. And we don't know what Moses' problem was. We don't know if uh, he was, we know he was able to understand God because the text shows us that. Moses understood God perfectly well. It wasn't an issue of understanding. In fact, that's why God continued to speak to and through Moses, even when Aaron was selected to be Moses' mouthpiece. But speaking to Moses and explaining to Moses God's role in disabilities, the Lord said this, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? We prefer 
hearing impaired or difficulty speaking. Who gives them sign a sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Well, that's clear enough. I mean, God is saying, I own it. You know, Moses, if you think you're going to use your disability as an excuse, talk to the author of your disability, because that's me. So what do you have to say, Moses? Moses just kind of shrugged, and, and they moved on from there. Prophet Micah says this. Uh, actually, he's quoting the Lord here, Micah 5, uh, 4.6, excuse me. He says, the Lord says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I have afflicted? Well, that's pretty clear to me. This is the consistent pattern. In no place in Scripture did God say, you know, that disability is just bad luck. You randomly got this. Sorry. God never says that. God says, I did it, but I'm going to solve it too. And that's what it means to say that God is responsible. Responsibility means that God is not just, just the cause, but he's the upholder, the enabler, and the final rescuer of people with disability. Now that is responsibility. This perspective differs considerably from simply blaming God for disability, which would be a serious error. Okay, so I want to distinguish finer points here when I say that. We don't blame God. We respect his explanation that he is responsible. And we leave it there, even though we can't understand. As creatures, we groan with pain and sadness for disabilities to be healed. The Apostle Paul explains, for the crea and he's describing how creation is in pain. He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This is his way of describing the effects of the fall or the curse. As creatures, we groan with pain and sadness for disabilities to be healed. And that's not wrong. We can, we can grieve over the fact that we or someone we love has a disability. God does. Why wouldn't we? But let's remind ourselves that God is going to resolve this thing in due time. And it will be in his timing. Sorry. God's gracious law makes provision for disability in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So we've dealt with Genesis and Exodus. What about Leviticus and Deuteronomy? God's people need protection by his law. But that was true of people with disabilities as well, uniquely perhaps. God tells his people in his law to care for those with disabilities. It's the law in scripture. This verse is a little bit chilling if you read it and you hear it the way God said it. Do not curse the deaf. I don't know why you would want to. Probably due to a misunderstanding about deafness even in that day and age. Do not curse the deaf or put a strong stumbling block in front of the blind. Notice, but fear your God. I would have expected a period after God and nothing more, but look at what God says. He puts his signature on this. He says, but fear your God, I am the Lord. That's a very powerful statement. I am the Lord. In other words, don't question me. I will bring about retribution on those who mistreat people with disabilities. Maybe not immediately, but in God's timing. The law also made provision for alms, <clears throat> excuse me, gleaning and other forms of gifting 
that would help people with disabilities survive. And we think of uh, the story of Ruth and how Ruth and Naomi had no food. What did they do? They went and gathered gleanings. Well, you know what? Gleanings were part of the provision made by the society for people with disabilities who weren't able to own their own fields and produce their own crops. Job and David follow the law by caring for people with disability. Defending his fidelity to God's commands, I don't know why this is so small, it shrunk. Job, <laughs> Job claimed, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. What's that mean? Job is saying, I am obedient to God's law, so I helped people who were blind. I became their eyes, so to speak, and I helped people who were lame. I became their feet. It's quite a claim, and it's exemplary. I mean, if, if we want to ask the question, in the Old Testament, what did it mean to be godly? That is what it meant to be godly. King David teaches us how to serve people with disability. I don't know what happened, but these shrunk somewhere along the line. Um, <clears throat> King David teaches us how to serve people with disabilities by the way he cares for Mephibosheth. Do you remember that story? Mephibosheth's uh, enemies, he was a baby, uh, his father's and his grandfather's enemies were coming to get him. And we won't talk about what they probably would have done. But his nurse carried him away. And carry, in carrying him out of the house in haste, she dropped him. And he became unable to walk. So that's how Mephibosheth became lame. Um, but what did David do for Mephibosheth? And we'll talk about this in a moment more. But David made provision for him. Mephibosheth was David's political enemy as the grandson of Saul. And some of David's warriors probably would have killed Mephibosheth. That's what they did, as ugly as it is. Well, we'll come back to that. God's prophets promise future hope for disability. We see this in Isaiah and Malachi. You see, that's the reason why the whole story in Scripture is so important. You can't just stop in Genesis and Exodus with disability being a, a a difficult and painful thing. You have to finish the story, and that's what we're going to do. Isaiah and Malachi. God will establish persons with disabilities. Again, Micah 4, 6. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, people who perhaps aren't able to provide for themselves or weren't accepted in society. That's why they're outcasts. And God says, they're the ones I'm going to gather. <laughs> Just take note. God will one day deliver persons with disabilities from their oppressors. I've got to tell you, being a part of the, the UN process is a spirit killer because you hear all those reports read and you just want to cry. I, I remember one particularly discouraging um, report was read about the fate of all children, all children in this world, children in general. It's more so true of children with disabilities. And by the time this individual got to the end of reading his report, people were sobbing. They were looking down. They were shaking their heads. And he said this, I know that some of you are discouraged. Just know this. God is not discouraged. We have to go on. That was at the UN. I don't know what you think about the UN. I have my own opinions. But there's some wonderful people who participate. And what will happen to the oppressors? It's not a pretty picture. I'm going to have to read it from up here. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. That is a promise. When God makes a promise, he keeps promises. Moving to the New Testament now, 
Jesus offers hope and a way for people with disabilities, Matthew through Revelation. In fact, people with disabilities become a very crucial part of Jesus' earthly ministry. People with disabilities allow Jesus to show compassion, bring glory to God, and demonstrate that he is God's son, the Messiah. And you know, Jesus didn't have to heal people with disabilities. He could have pulled up trees by their roots and stood them upside down and things like that. But he did the right thing based on God's law. He went and he helped people with disabilities and he healed many of them, not all of them, he healed many of them. And so consequently, people with disabilities become a platform for Jesus' ministry. They create a speaking place for Jesus and he does just that. People with disabilities give Jesus the opportunity to correct wrong ideas about God's love, human sinfulness, suffering, and faith. Well, what are some of these myths that Jesus himself dispels? One is, God does not love people with disabilities. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I think God has a special love for people with disabilities. That's what I read when I read my Bible. But, you know, this is what comes from pagan mythology and false religion. Disability becomes a punishing point. And so people with disabilities are being punished or their parents are being punished. Jesus says, it isn't so. <laughs> That's a very wrong way of thinking, wrong conclusion. Secondly, related to that, people with disabilities or their parents must have sinned against God. Well, we just said that. Uh, they didn't. Not only does God love people with disabilities, what their parents did and what they've done probably has nothing or little to do with the disability. I always, want to, I always want to leave a little bit of room for when God chastens us for sinning sometimes, he brings something tragic into our lives. And sometimes that's disability. So we have to allow for that. But that isn't God judging. That isn't God punishing. That's God drawing people to himself and using things like disability to do that. Myth number three, I just smile when I read this. People with disabilities lack the faith to be healed. Well, have you ever met my boss? She's got one of the strongest faiths I've seen. Uh, yet she has quadriplegia. And I've noticed many times that people with disabilities have a unique and outstanding faith that's different because of the kind of suffering they may have done as a result of their disability. Although, again, be careful of the equation between disability and suffering. It's not direct. People with disabilities allow other believers, that word other is so important, the opportunity to show love for God, love for people, and faithfulness. So this is where all of us come in, including those of us who have disabilities. So how can we evangelize, disciple, and train individuals for ministry who struggle with simply staying alive? Well, we share the gospel with them just like anyone else. But scripture also shows us how to respond to the human needs of persons with disabilities. The story of King David, to come back to that now, and Mephibosheth is very important here because it illustrates how we also might respond. What did David do for Mephibosheth? David recognized Mephibosheth's need to work, not just receive charity. Remember I said that a number of my friends with disabilities say, don't show us charity, give us a job. Now they're not saying that they hate charity. They're saying they prefer a job. The king, King David, used his position to create space for Mephibosheth within Israel's workforce. And that was important to Mephibosheth. Think about it now. Mephibosheth probably would have been or become the king in Israel. That was taken from him due to the sin of his grandfather. And his own father was killed due to the sin of his grandfather, not the sin of his father. But what David did for Mephibosheth, and he could have done anything. He had all the money in Israel. 
He had the coffers of Jerusalem in his hands to do with what he wanted to. He could have showered Mephibosheth with money. He didn't. That's not what he did. He put him to work in Israel's workforce. David ensured Mephibosheth a social and legal status through sustainable work, just like everyone else. That is so incredibly important for all of us. Israel's greatest human king, I think this is part of what made David great, quite honestly. We can look at certain chapters in David's life and say, what happened? But you can look at this one and say, wow, this is cool. Israel's greatest king treated Mephibosheth like a son. Remember, he was his political enemy. David should have feared Mephibosheth. What if some of the Saul supporters came along, whisked Mephibosheth up, and tried to make him king? And let's go after David now. That didn't stop David from doing the right thing. He invited him to eat and enjoy the good life at his family table. God often meets the needs of people with disabling conditions through others. That's part of his ownership. Remember, that's part of his responsibility. Fittingly, God chose a king to care for an orphan with a disabling condition. David shows us how to respond to the physical needs of persons with disabilities, but how should the church, how should we, collectively and Christians individually, respond to the spiritual needs of persons with disabilities, especially since we might become part of that group real soon. There are two compatible schools of thought about individual Christians and the church body, how, the church, how individual Christians and the church body should respond to the needs of people with disabilities. So this is a little bit of a controversy, but I think it's easily resolvable. The first response is to create space Ministries, we could say special ministries, and services in the church specifically for persons with disabilities to fellowship, learn, live, and minister with other people who have disabilities. Sometimes this is necessary. I believe in it with all my heart. But this approach could isolate people with disabilities from the rest of the congregation if we're not careful and cut them off from what they may lack and desire most because it's what we all desire most, and that is basically this. Close and meaningful relationships with all the rest of the church. This problem forces us to ask what we mean by disability ministry. Think about that for a moment. What does it mean to help a person with a disability? How do you help them best? That's the question. But that question leads to a more fundamental question. What should the church be and do for people with disabilities? I think that's the right question to ask. Let's ask them. What do people with disabilities say that they need? People with disabilities have three basic re requests for local churches for any sphere of life, and that's this. Access, need to be able to get in. Is it a ramp? Is it a widened doorway? Is it an accessible bathroom? What is it? It's hard to believe, but if you think about it long enough, if a bathroom in the church is not accessible, what is a person with a disability supposed to do during the two hours or one to two hours we're at church? Practical question. Inclusion, this looks less at ramps and doorways and more at social, personal, I call it fellowship, interaction. They want that. So do we. All of us. And then finally, reasonable accommodation. That word reasonable is very important. The, the terminology reasonable accommodation was originally part of what's called supported employment. That is helping a person with a disability maintain a job and providing reasonable accommodation. But it's being used in all discussions of disabilities today. Um, reasonable accommodation is reasonable. What's reasonable? It's up to us to determine what is reasonable. But now, let's look at the second option for how churches should minister to people with disabilities, and that is to include them in every aspect of church life and ministry. This means remove 
any barriers or obstacles people with disabilities might face, whether they're physical, social, or other. So the first one was we help people perhaps with certain disabilities by creating special space. This one is part of the congregation in every way. I believe passionately that we should use both intentional and inclusive ministry models, let's call them that, or methods, for people with disabilities with varying within varying conditions and contexts. In other words, just use good sense. For I, my experiences, for parents of children with disabilities, they might need a group within the church. doesn't need to meet during the morning hour, but they need to talk. They need to listen to one another. They need to provide uh, advice about positions and procedures and all that. It's so incredibly important. So special space is what we're talking about for parents, not the children with disabilities. Just like churches do for other ministry groupings, such as young marrieds, elderly, and youth, perhaps. You know, we, we create a special space for them at times, but they're a part of the rest of the congregation. How do local churches love people with disabilities best? Asked that question last night and tried to answer it. We share the gospel with them. We disciple them to spiritual maturity. Remember them as us. We give those who are called and gifted the opportunity to serve in the church in every role, every role. In short, people with disabilities want to know Christ and grow spiritually, but also feel like a part of and actually take part in the church, just like anyone else. Of course they do. That's what all of us want. But even missions? Well, that's the reason why uh, an Australian physician friend of mine and I decided enough is enough. <laughs> He, uh, he has a daughter with a disability. He does medical work on the mission field. And he saw this himself. It was hard to convince uh, a mission board and even churches to, to send them back to the field. And by the way, that's not necessarily wrongly motivated. It's not that they would be ineffective, but could the child survive in a mission kind of environment? Well, that's a, that's a family decision. If a family decides to go, send. God works powerfully in missions through disability and not in spite of it. No matter what our disability or vulnerability may be, God can use us. And if the body of Christ is supportive, people with disabilities can be effective agents of transformation on the mission field. That's why we wrote the book. The book is a collection of stories of how God used disability, not in spite of the disability, but because of the disability and gave ministry success and gave God the glory. So that's our book. I'm not urging you to buy it. I am urging you to accept the message. Please. If we will do these things, we can say with Job, I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. At the end of the age, our stories, including our responses to people with disabilities, will coalesce with God's incomparable story. Although disability will no longer exist at the end of the age, the memory of disability will be part of God's story and a basis for praising him for all time. Is disability important? You bet it is. Is how we treat people with disabilities important? Oh, it is so much. What might this look like? An artist named Hyatt Moore um, drew a mural, a wall mural that hangs on the wall at Johnny and Friends. Uh, as you can tell, that this is a supper around the table. You have to use your imagination a little bit. This isn't the last supper. This is the very last supper in the imagination, if you will. And the table is surrounded by people with disabilities. Probably recognize that woman in a wheelchair with blonde hair right in the center of the front. Um, but I recognized a lot of other people in the photo because I've met them. These were people that came with disabilities from all over the world for an event that we had at Johnny and Friends. And this painter captured it beautifully. The very last supper where we gather around the table with Jesus and we celebrate and we praise him.
The Apostle John says, and there shall no longer be any curse, Revelation 22, 3, to which we might add, and there will no longer be disabilities, for Jesus will reign, and it's his will that they not have the disabilities. To him be the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the stewardship of disability, for those of us who already have disabilities. We thank you for the gift of disability, and we thank you that you provide the resources to live with the disability. Father, for the rest of us who don't have a disability yet, we ask that you would improve our understanding, all of us in the room, ask that you would improve our understanding through the verses we looked at today so that we might be more effective in the way that we respond to disability in all forms of suffering. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.